0: Tonight, it's just going to be a sermon. It's going to be nice and simple. Um, and tonight, uh, we're going to be looking at the contrast between fear and faith. Right? These two things are opposed in our lives, um, and they're in conflict with each other. And uh, the Lord is calling us to a faith that conquers our fears. I think in my own life, I've seen these two things battling against each other. Uh, A couple weeks back, I I shared with you guys a little bit about my own personal story. Um, I came to college not knowing or trusting Jesus. Uh, It wasn't until I was pretty deep into my first year that I actually came to believe in Jesus. Um, And so by the time that I arrived at college, uh, pornography had been something that had just established a foothold in my life. And I shared that with you before. Um, But I think about that dynamic between Fear and faith, and that was playing at volume 10 at that point. Um, and it had been for years. You see, I would, I would go to church and I would hear a pastor talk about, God wants you to walk in purity. God wants you to walk in a relationship with him. Um, and he, he can bring you into that. And i remember thinking, great, I want that. And so I would pray to God and I would say, Lord, I, I want this gone. Take this away from me please, 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 please take this away from me. And then after that, I would kind of white knuckle it, and I would resist for a while, and then I would fall again. And this was just over and over and over. And as this continued to happen, this, this fear started to build in me, fear that people would find out about who I really was and what I did, and that they'd be ashamed of me and disgusted with me and not want anything to do with me. There was a fear about, maybe this is just going to be the way that I live for the rest of my life. Like, maybe there is no walking in purity. Maybe there is no walking in intimacy with the Lord. Maybe this is just what I'm doomed to. Walking in the shadows, trying to white knuckle for a little bit, and then failing and doing it all over again. My pastors were calling me to faith, and yet I just felt crippled by fear. And I know that you guys experience this in different ways as well. One of the comforting things is we see actually disciples struggle with this tension between faith and fear. And so tonight, what we're going to see is that faith that conquers fear is not faith that you drum up in yourself. It's not faith that you just will yourself to have. And you finally cross a threshold and God says, all right, that's enough. I'm going to deliver you from that. Faith that conquers fear is rooted in trusting the one who is mighty. It's not focusing on yourself. It's not focusing on the struggle that you have. It's looking at the king who conquers and trusting in him. That's the faith that conquers fear, trusting in the mighty one. And so let's go ahead and open up to the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter four tonight. And what we're going to see in the book of Mark is two different stories. The first story is going to be about Jesus calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the second story is going to be about Jesus casting out actually an army of demons from one man. And in both stories, what we're going to see is that there's really two things, that Jesus is the Lord, that he's God himself in flesh, and then two, we're going to see that there's two responses to that. There's fear, which is the false response, and then there's faith which is actually the minority response in this tonight. So let's go ahead and open up Mark 4, and we're going to start it off in verse 35. Here we're going to see that in the face of a storm, the disciples allow fear to quench their faith. I'm going to read a little bit, explain, read a little bit, and explain. 35, on that day, when the evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go across the sea to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We'll stop right there. The Sea of Galilee is in a little basin, uh, surrounded by mountains and hills. And so, it's not uncommon for winds to come down those hills and to just strike the lake pretty hard and stir up a storm pretty quickly. But this one had to be different because there's at least four guys in this group, the disciples, who are experienced fishermen. They know this lake, they're used to the things that go on on the lake. And yet, this one throws them into a panic. This one's a little bit different. So, you think about it they've had a full long day, Jesus has been teaching across the sea probably all tired and so they get in the boat and they're kind of going across it's calm and then Jesus finally has a moment of quiet so he lays his head down to just sleep and then in a moment's notice the wind comes and it's dark because it's evening and even though they're struggling to try to get control of the boat no matter what they do the boat continues to rock and waves continue to come in and they're taking on more and more water and on top of this as Jews, they actually believe that the sea, the water, uh, is, is a place of evil. It's where chaos and evil actually reside. This is something that's in the Bible as imagery throughout, but then the Jews actually believe that, that demonic spirits lived within bodies of water. So imagine the terror. You're out there at night. A crazy storm is whipped up. No matter what you do, you can't get control of the boat again. And you're about to sink into what you feel like is the abode of demons. <laughs> and they look at Jesus and they say, what are you doing? How can he be sleeping right now? And in that moment, they forget who Jesus is and what he's done. In that, in that moment, they allow fear to blind them. right? Because they've seen Jesus be compassionate towards people time and time and time again. He obviously cares for the crowds, but then especially for his disciples. But in the moment, it's easy to forget that. Whenever fear is overwhelming, how can this man be sleeping? Does he actually care for us? In the moment, they allow fear to make them forget that Jesus is mighty. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal sick people. They've seen him cleanse lepers. Time and time again, he's done mighty things, and yet in the moment, whenever fear is pressing in, whenever their eyes are focused on the threat that is before them, they forget that Jesus is mighty. There's no reason to be worried. He's right there in the boat with them. He's not going to let them die. In the moment, fear quenches their faith. And then even as Jesus exerts the power of God himself, the disciples fail to see... That he is the Lord. So he's going to respond to the storm. He's going to show that he has the power of God. And yet the disciples are still going to fail to see who this man is. So pick it up in verse 39 with me. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind. Interesting. And said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Who but the creator speaks to the creation and it obeys? And Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? Why are you so cowardly? Have you still no faith? And the disciples were filled with great fear. They feared a great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? In the Old Testament, we see time and time again that the God of Israel, Yahweh, has power over the sea. This is the physical waters, but it's also the forces of evil and chaos that war against him. And he has power and authority over it. And so I just want to read just a couple verses from the Old Testament that speak of God's authority over the sea. And I want you to listen for some of the echoes that we see here in this story about Jesus. In the Psalms it says, Yahweh, the God of Israel, stills the roaring of the sea's the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. Another passage says, O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Yahweh, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And again, we see that Yahweh has the power to call forth a storm and then cease it. It says... For God, Yahweh, commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And then the sailors cried out to him in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. There's direct parallels here. All these texts are echoed right here as Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and says to the sea, be still. We've seen several times in Mark that Jesus does things that only God can do. He, he says, I can forgive sins. We've also seen that Jesus takes imagery from the Old Testament that's only for God and he applies it to himself. He calls him the bri- his, himself the bridegroom of Israel. But here, we actually see Jesus exerting the power of God himself because Jesus is God in flesh. He stands up, he rebukes the storm. And it goes from this great raging storm to a calm, placid lake like that. No more waves, no more rocking of the boat, just still. And yet, even in the face of that, the disciples look at that and they ask the question, Who then is this? Who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? And Jesus looks at them, and he's frustrated. He's frustrated. He actually says, why are you so cowardly? Why are you so timid? Do you still not have faith? You see, they've been with him to see him cast out demons. They've seen him cleanse lepers. They've seen him do mighty work after mighty work and speak things that really only God can speak. And yet they still fail to perceive him. They still feel, fail to see that he is the Lord over creation, and to trust him because of that. And so in the face of the storm, the disciples allow fear to quench their faith. And I'm thankful for stories like this, honestly, because I can relate to that. Right? I've seen God do mighty, mighty things in my life and in the lives of others, and yet whenever trouble arises, it's easy to forget, oh yeah, you do care about me. Oh yeah, you actually can take care of this. And so while the disciples are given to us as an example not to follow, it's also kind of a comforting reminder to say, Jesus is patient. The people that he walks with are imperfect and messy, yes. And he's gracious with them. And in the face of the storm, the disciples still lack faith. They allow their fear to quench their faith. In this next story, though, we're going to see that evil takes a step to front and center. It's no longer a symbolic thing in the sea. It's actually personified in a person that's possessed. And we're going to see that Jesus is victorious over a whole army of demons. And there's two responses. The majority respond in fear. And one man responds in faith. Pick it up. We're going to read through five. I'm going to read a little bit, explain, read a little bit, explain. The... Si- Jesus and the disciples came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, a demon. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, so that no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day... Among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is one of the more interesting uh, scenes about possession in the Bible. This is more detailed than any other scene that we have here in the book of Mark. And it's more stretched out and elongated. And there's there's some other traits about it that I'll point out as we go through. But the main thing that I want you to see is this man is basically a slave in a state of misery headed to his own destruction. And so, he obviously can't control himself. He is so out of control that people can't even bind him with chains. He breaks them apart. Not only that, but he's constantly cutting himself, abusing himself. He lives alienated among the tombs with no community, no one to care for him. This guy's miserable. And the goal of the demonic in his life, in your life, in my life, is to lead a person to destruction. And in this picture, what we see is really them taking sadistic pleasure and stretching that out over a lifetime. They're going to make this guy live in a graveyard. They're going to make him miserable, alone, and he just is going to continue to abuse himself until he's destroyed. This is the man in a state of desperation. This is the man who comes up to Jesus. And next we're going to see, this is a unique confrontation between Jesus and the Spirit. There's an actual struggle that happens here. Pick it up in verse 6. And when this demon-possessed man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out, screaming with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me? What are you doing here around me? What do you think you're about here, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, I command you in God's name, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And the man replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. So the scene is this. This demon-possessed man comes up and he's confrontational. He's in his face. He says, what have you to do with me? You don't belong here. I don't know what you think you're doing here, but you need to leave now. And then he actually tries to gain authority over Jesus. You see, in the ancient world, and I've said this before, in the ancient world... Naming somebody's name, having knowledge of their secret title is a way that magicians and exorcists try to gain authority over other people or spiritual beings. And so whenever the demon calls Jesus son of the most high God, he's saying, I know who you are and I have authority over you and I'm going to tell you what to do. You need to get out of here. And then he tries to command God in flesh and the name of God and he says, don't torment me. So it's this interesting scene. This guy is bold. This is different than some of the other interactions that he's had. And then in verse 8, take a look at it again. In verse 8, we see that this is not a once and done thing, but Jesus is repeatedly saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The verb there, he was saying, implies repetition. This isn't just a single command. Jesus had been saying this, come out, come out of this man. Come out of this man. And that's whenever the demon speaks and says, what do you think you're doing here? I know who you are. I command you in God's name to not torment me. And so Jesus kind of steps back and he says, what is your name? I think he does that because it's a different interaction than he's had with the others. We've seen other scenes where he's exercised a demon and it's been just in a word. They're gone. And here it doesn't work like that. And what I want you to see is, even though the authority and the power of Jesus is not in question, that's never something that's going to be triumphed over or defeated, that doesn't mean that this isn't a struggle. That doesn't mean that there's not a true battle going on here. And we see why that's the case. Because after he asks, what's your name? The man says, Legion, for we are many. Legion is a military term. It refers to a whole cohort of Roman soldiers numbering in the thousands. And so what we see here is there's actually an army of demonic forces within this one man. And seemingly, because they're all together, they can actually resist some of the commands of Christ. And yet, even in the midst of that struggle, the authority and the power of Christ is clear. And so let's keep on going. Verse 10. The man begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Now, you might think, what the heck is going on with the pigs? Why why is that? Uh, it's important to know that in the Jewish mindset... Pigs are unclean animals. Uh, You don't touch them. You don't eat them. These were declared unclean by God, and therefore, unsatisfactory. You don't have anything to do with them. But Jesus is in Gentile territory, so there's a whole herd of pigs, a ton of them. On top of that, it's important to know that pigs are used in pagan worship. They're sacrificed to false gods. And so there's this association of demonic spirits, unclean spirits, with pigs. And so they're, they're fine with Going into them. And I think it's interesting that the immediate thing that happens to these pigs is they plunge straight to their death. The demonic is about destroying God's creation. They were doing that slowly with this man that they had control of, but they do it immediately with the pigs. The angle was a little bit farther out with the man, but it's immediate here. The demonic is about destroying God's creation. And we see that put on display very clearly. And then after this great great exorcism, we see two different reactions. A crowd comes, and they are terrified, and they ask Jesus to go away. But one man actually responds in faith. Read 14 through 20 with me. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there. And he was clothed. And in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. They began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. Jesus complied, and as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him, that he might follow him as a disciple. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away. And he began to proclaim in the Decapolis. How much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And so the Gentile crowds come. uh, Word traveled probably pretty quickly. Something that big happened. And they come and they see this man. A man that probably many of them knew. Uh, They had heard the stories about the crazy things he'd done. They had heard the stories about how he wandered the cemetery naked, slashing himself, screaming, breaking chains. Some of them might have even been the people who tried to help him by binding him up just to control him. And yet they come, and he's clothed. And he's calm. He has his right mind. What in the world kind of power does this man have if he can do that? And then they see... The carnage of 2,000 pigs now floating in the sea. That's a huge economic loss. But then they must also wonder, okay, if we don't tell this guy to get out of here, what else is going to happen? What else are we going to lose? And so they are terrified. And say, please, please, just go. Leave. We don't know you. We don't know what you're about. We don't know how you've done what you've done. But you need to leave right now. And the one man to respond in faith is the man who's been freed. And he wants to follow Jesus. And even though he doesn't get to, he actually gets to proclaim what Jesus has done for him. And I want you to see what Mark does here in verses 19 and 20. He does something a little bit sly. (laughs) Jesus gives the instructions. He says, I want you to go to your friends and I want you to tell them how much the Lord, that word is used of God in the Old Testament on repeat. That's his title. How much God has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And then Mark reports and says that this man did that. He was faithful and he was obedient and he proclaimed what Jesus had done for him. And so we see that Mark is making the point, Jesus is the Lord God himself. Whereas the disciples ask the question, who then is this man? How does he do what he does? We see that answered in the second story. Ironically, the demons see that clearly. You are son of the most high God. And then by the end of the story, we see that Jesus is the Lord God himself. The one with all authority. We see that he has authority and power over the natural realm. The forces of evil. And we see that he has power over the supernatural realm. The Lord tonight is calling you to a faith that actually conquers your fears. And there's a lot of different ways that we can talk about that, how that plays out in your daily life. We can talk about life storms. Uh, various ways that you struggle to trust. But I, I want to focus in on just one aspect because I don't think we addressed it enough. I want to focus in on the aspect of spiritual evil. God is calling you not to cower in fear before forces of spiritual evil. He's actually asking, calling you, commanding you to trust in Jesus, the conquering Lord, the one who has all might, all power, and authority over all spiritual forces and who has conquered them for you and wants to fight on your behalf. And before I even get to that, I feel like I just need to do a sidebar and just talk about demonic forces, Uh, because I I know that there's got to be some of us who struggle to actually believe in those things, right? Uh, And I can relate to that. So I I told you that I didn't come to know Jesus, I didn't come to believe in him until I was into my first year in college. Part of my struggle was a lot of different things that the Bible said, Uh, do I really believe that... A whale swallowed a man, and he was in the belly for three days, and then was spit up on the beach, and he was okay. You know, and I could list all these different stories. Do I really believe this? This is the questions going on over and over in my mind. But one of the questions was, do I really have to believe in Satan and demons? I mean, seriously. Um, That's a little bit archaic. That's a little bit childish. Like little demons under my bed with little pitchforks torturing me, popping my tires. You know, I struggled with that. And so, if, if, that's, if you can kind of relate to that, if you struggle to believe that, I just want to have a little discussion, right? Um, one, it's good to be aware that that mindset is actually a very recent historical development. That mindset is rooted in a view of the world that is only physical, only material, only observable and testable by science. And there is no other realm. There is no spiritual realm. And so Satan and demons are just ancient ways of describing different things. But for the modern people who are smart, who are advanced, we don't need that. And so if you find yourself in that boat, I just want to point out to you that you are a unique exception in the stream of human history and in the world right now. Like through history... Almost all human societies have had some general belief in there being a spiritual realm and there being beings that live in it, both good and bad. That's been historically the case for the history of man. And then even in this world today, people who reject that are pretty small. We're talking about North America we're talking about Western Europe. And the rest of the world by and large, maintains a belief that there is a spiritual realm and there are spiritual beings and they interact with things that are going on every day. And so if you're struggling to believe in that, if you're saying, "Eh," you know, I think we've kind of outgrown that, I just want to point out to you, you are an exception in the scope of human history and you're an exception in the world right now. And I also just want to suggest to you that to say that North Americans and Western Europeans kind of have learned a few things that the rest of humans haven't, We kind of know things a little bit better. It's just Western arrogance to point at the rest of human history and point at the rest of the world and say, all right, guys, once you catch up with us, we'll teach you a thing or two. Right? I would say it's actually the other way around. Being in other cultures, seeing what people see, experiencing what they experience, could actually teach us quite a bit. There's things that go on that affect us, and we're open game for it because we don't believe it. I also want to suggest to you that the demonic one of their tactics is actually to hide themselves in our culture so they're not clear they're not apparent they can work in subtle ways why because we don't believe they're there and so i can do whatever i want without being affected apart from my physical body you know this is one of their tactics is actually to disguise themselves to hide themselves and so If that's you, if you're kind of in that boat, I just want to give you some things to chew on. The Bible speaks clearly that there is a spiritual realm, there are spiritual beings, and the evil ones are actively opposed to you. If you are going to believe in God, who's a spiritual being, who's good, and even if you're going to believe in his angels, who are spiritual beings, who are good, it should be no harder to believe in Satan and demons and in fact, I would say it's imperative to a true, healthy, vibrant faith that you know they're there. There's, a, there's also another argument that says uh, Satan and demons are a way that the ancients kind of talked about illness, right? They didn't understand what was going on in people's minds whenever they were crazy. They didn't understand what was going on in people's bodies whenever they were sick. And so they just said, hey, it's Satan and demons, these spiritual beings. That's what's causing all these problems, that's an interesting thought, and I used to think that as well. Uh, and then I began to look at how the Bible actually speaks about demonic forces and illness, and it's in very distinct ways. You see, there, there, are, there is a the belief that demons can cause illness, whether it's mental or physical. They can bring that about in somebody, but they are not equated with that. And the Bible is consistent in saying that illnesses, whether physical or mental, are healed. Whereas demonic forces are cast out, these are distinct things, and so it's not a simple well this equals that in the Bible. Some things to chew on if you're struggling to believe with those believe those things. For the rest of us, I want to talk more directly about the hold and the influence that the demonic can exert on you. We see in this text a pretty extreme example. This. Demon possessed man is possessed by an army of demons, and he is probably at the extreme level of the scale in terms of being affected by them. He is possessed, he's out of control of himself. What I want you to see is that's not the case for everybody. There's a spectrum of influence and being attacked by demonic forces. Here's the extremity, and there are a whole lot of other options. That can be what we walk through. And so for some of you, for some of you, you actually have demonic footholds in your life that give some level of influence to spiritual evil. Whenever I say a foothold, I'm talking about habitual patterns of sin that you have given a place to. You've carved out a piece of your life, and you've said, okay, you can be here, no more. I'll give you your space, I'll give you your time, I'll give you your food, uh, but I'll control you. These are habitual patterns of sin. These are what the Bible calls a foothold. And it gives the demonic an opportunity to influence you, to harass you, to discourage you, to even lead down the road in extreme cases to exerting control over you. Now what, what would a demonic foothold look like? Uh, just have a list of different things. The Bible speaks of bitterness, anger, unforgiveness as a foothold for the enemy, right? There's something that somebody has done to you. There's a situation that you are just absolutely upset about, and you harbor that. And it could be for a number of reasons, right? You, you might think that you're vindicated by your anger. You have the right to be angry because you've been wronged, because life didn't turn out the way you wanted it to be. And so you harbor that anger, you keep it there, it turns into bitterness and it festers. And all the while, the demonic is using that to pervert your character, to distort your heart, and to exert authority and control in your life. Whether you realize it or not, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, these things are a foothold for the enemy. There's also different forms of sexual sin that's a foothold for the enemy. And so I talked about pornography before, but this could be even something um, as minute, right, I put that in quotes, uh, as just constant lustful thoughts, right? You just kind of give your mind free reign to think about whatever it wants. You give your heart free reign just to fantasize, right? And it's not affecting anybody, you might think. And I'm not even looking at pornography, I'm just kind of like thinking my thoughts, And yet, even something as small as that, if that seems small to you, is a way that the demonic can work in your mind to twist, to pervert, and ultimately lead you to destruction. And then, obviously, we can talk about behaviors. We can talk about habitual sexual sin with other people. These are opportunities that the demonic capitalizes on and uses against you. They deceive you in the moment to think that, hey, this is actually pleasurable. I like this. This is for my good. And yet, the end goal, like I said before, is always destruction. It's never for your good. There's also, some of you struggle with self-loathing for a good bit of your life. And so a demonic foothold has become not only those feelings of hating yourself, but then expressing it by cutting yourself or abusing yourself in different ways. This is a way that demonic exercises a clear influence in your life. I'd say this is clearer than others because that that goal of destroying you is not hidden anymore. They've actually convinced you that this is what you want, that it gives you peace or release or security, whatever it is. They've convinced you that this is good for you and they're leading you down that path of destruction. I could go, On and on. We could talk about getting drunk and high regularly. This is a way that your mind actually, you let down the guard. It's like being in a house in a bad part of town and just unlocking the door and leaving it open. and Being like, come on in. I don't really care about this place. Come on in. Getting drunk or high regularly is a way that you just kind of let down your defenses and say, come on in to the demonic. For you who have these footholds, ones that I've listed or something similar, fear's going to rise up in you that you can't let this go. Like, there's going to be a part of you that thinks, "Uh, this defines me. Like, this is who I am. This is how I've lived probably for years now. And I I can't even think about letting that go. There's going to be some of, of you who think, this satisfies me. Like This is where I find my pleasure, and if I let this go, then joy in life will be gone. This gives me comfort or security, and if I let this go, I'll be on my own, and I won't know how to cope. As soon as that foothold begins to be threatened, as the Lord says, this needs to be cut out, this needs to be gone, that fear is going to rise up, and you're going to move in to actually protect it. And this is a way that you're countering in fear of spiritual forces. They have deceived you. And they have established a way to influence you in your life. And it is against their interests to let you give that up. And so that fear that you feel is your fear before the enemy. It's not just about losing your identity or losing your satisfaction. You are countering in fear at that moment before the demonic. And so the Lord's calling you to conquer that fear by focusing on the Lord who is mighty. This is not a faith that you drum up in yourself and you say, all right, I'm going to believe God. I'm going to do my faith better. No, you turn and you look at Jesus, the one who conquers over the evil one, who has authority to cast them out, who on the cross defeated them, and who fights on your behalf by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, that you might walk in freedom, in life, and joy, and peace. He is the mighty one. Having faith in him is what conquers your fear. And so what does it look like to let go of a foothold? It looks like confessing that it is sin. Name it for what it is. This is a demonic foothold in my life. This lust, this pornography, this bitterness, this angerness, this anger, angerness. You know, I could keep on going. This is a way that the enemy wants to destroy me. And I've believed that it was for my good. I've clung to it for far too long. I'm rejecting that now. Lord, I trust in you, and I believe that you can give me the security I need. I believe that you can give me significance. I believe that you can satisfy me, and you can comfort me. These things that I've sought from sinful things, I'm turning to you for. So that's what it looks like to reject a foothold. There are some of you who need to do that. And honestly, that's a hard thing to do on your own whenever this is fresh news to you. And so I would encourage you, if you know a leader in here, talk with that leader. Come talk with us as pastors. Nothing surprises us, all right? We've we've seen quite a bit. We want to see you walk in freedom in life. There are others of you, though, who are not struggling with a foothold. You're actually struggling... You're cowering in fear before the enemy because of the lies that you've believed, and these might be lies that you've embraced your whole life. Right? They could be things like, "My sin is too great to be forgiven." Like the things that I've done, that's too much to be washed clean. I know what you say about Jesus. I know what you say um, about how God can forgive, but you don't know me. My sin's too great. This is a demonic lie. There might be others of you who struggle with the lie that nobody likes you. They don't like to be around you. Nobody loves you. And you'll be alone always. And frankly, God feels the same way about you. And even if you're a Christian, you might think, okay, well, God kind of accepted me, but begrudgingly. And he's always kind of disappointed in in me and frustrated with me. You believe that nobody likes you, nobody loves you. And you will always be alienated. There are others of you who think that, you know, honestly, things would be better for me and for the people around me if I just took my own life. Like, I'm miserable, I make the people around me miserable, and it would just be better for everybody if I just kind of ended this. In each and every case, and I could go on and on, these are lies that have been planted in your mind by demonic forces that want to destroy you. And you might think, oh, that's crazy, because it sounds like my voice in my head. I've never heard some crazy, deep, guttural voice saying, nobody likes you, right? But that's just the way the demonic works. They plant seeds in your mind that sprout, and you begin to tell those things to yourself. And they become a cycle, a conversation that you have in your mind on even a daily basis. And over years and years and years, that becomes your voice, Because you so thoroughly bought into the lie. It sounds like you. It feels like you. But it was planted there by a force that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And so, for you, the call is not necessarily to renounce a foothold, if that's not there. But it is to reject those lies. And as soon as we talk about rejecting those lies, there's going to be some fears coming up. My whole life has been shaped by the belief that people hate me. I I can't even think about what it would be like to walk away from that and interact with people in a confident way. My whole life has been shaped by the belief that my sins can't be forgiven. And I I, I don't even feel like I can trust God in that way. There's, There's a sense of familiarity that you have, honestly, with the lies that you've believed And to reject those seems impossible. And so the faith that the Lord is calling you to is not something that you work up in yourself. Not, I'm going to really believe it now. I'm going to really, really trust harder. (laughs) It's to look at the Lord. It's to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered sin, Satan, and evil in the world and then for you and to trust Him. To know that He's mighty. And so... To reject that lie, you you name it explicitly. I have believed X. I have believed that my sins are too great to be forgiven. I have believed that nobody likes me and I will always be alone. I have believed that it's better if I just take my own life. And in Jesus' name, I reject that. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And I'm going to trust you, Lord, the things that you say about me and what you've done for me. Again, like I said, if this is all new to you and you find yourself saying, I think I need to do that, that's a hard thing to do on your own. So I want to encourage you to talk with somebody about that. But I want you to know that you don't have to stay in that. I want you to know that Jesus is the Lord over all forces, whether natural or supernatural. And he has defeated the spiritual enemies that want to see you miserable and plotting to your own destruction. He has conquered them. Put your eyes on him. Trust in him. And faith that comes from trusting in him conquers our fears. It's an imperfect faith. It's a struggling faith. It's one that needs to continue to take baby steps and grow. But a faith that's focused on the one who's mighty, the one who conquers, that's the faith that conquers fear. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, You are the Almighty King. Lord, You are mighty and powerful and glorious, and yet You are kind and gracious and compassionate. Lord, we've met no one else like You, and it is good to be submitted to You. I pray, Lord, in Your name and by the power of Your Spirit, that you would draw my brothers and sisters into confidence in you. I pray that you would cut off fear. I pray that you would stir up their faith as they reflect on who you are and what you've done for them. And I pray, Lord, that you would bind the enemy and that he would have no place in these hearts and these minds and in these lives. And I pray in Jesus' name that these men and women will walk in freedom, in joy, in joy, in peace, receiving your love and giving your love to others. And I pray that they would walk in authority over the demonic spirits that you have conquered. We love you. We pray this in your name and by your spirit. Amen. Guys, there is no dinner tonight. um, But there is an after dark meeting right after this. It's actually going to be happening right now in the parking lot right over here in front of the Early Childhood Research Center. Uh, know that we're not having cross point next week. There's going to be after dark on campus right around the same time. And so I want all of you guys to invite your friends and go to that instead, okay? Friends who don't know the Lord, all right? Love you guys. Have a great week.